Hello everyone, it's Thursday 6th of October and welcome to episode 124 of the Kite Podcast with him, Will Evans, and him, Ben Eagle. Chris, Chris what are you doing? What, this is our, this what is are our you job. doing? Well, I want to be a presenter now. I don't want to do my market report. <laughs> I want to be a, can I be a presenter, Becky? <laughs> you, well, to be fair, Chris, that's not a bad start. All right, all right, not a bad start. I'll leave it to the pros. Go on, Will, take it away. Hello, everyone. It's Thursday, the 6th of October, and welcome to episode 124 of the Kite Podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Chris Walkland. Um, <laughs> today, <laughs> we are discussing a report which has been put together by today's guest on behalf of Kite, entitled How Company Priorities Align to the UK Dairy Roadmap. Uh, the report gives us uh, an in-depth view into the sustainability policies of the UK's major food retailers, highlighting several themes and issues which are of importance to dairy farmers and processors. So with us on the show today is the report author, Hayley Campbell-Gibbons, director at Campbell Gibbons Consulting and, of course, a former chief dairy advisor at the NFU, among other things. We're also joined by Kite partner Ainsley Baker. Ainsley, I think I think you must be winning the record for the member of the Kite team who's been on the podcast most. I need to check that, but I think you might be. I think um, it just feels like that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> also, senior consultant at Kite and our podcast producer, of course, Becky Leach. And as always, everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland. Um, Chris, let's go over to you uh, for the Milk Market Report, because that's what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> where where are you this I, week? I'm not doing the milk market report. I mean, I, sure. I mean, we could we could swap roles, but I think Chris, I think you'd probably be better at our job than we would be at yours. I think that might be the case. <laughs> okay, well, I'm bringing you my report from deep inside a pot of exterior green paint, smooth finish, of course, because that's what I am: smooth and finished, not rough around the edges like Will and Ben. <laughs> but why from here, I hear nobody ask? Because a nice, smart, green exterior is what every self-respecting company must have these days. Being green is what matters. It's the only thing everyone worries about. Or did. Now things are a bit more kaleidoscopic, because consumers are feeling blue, because we're all in the red. And there are even greyer clouds on the economic horizon. See what I did there with all my colours. Happily, though, we've got Hayley on the show and she's enough to keep everyone in the pink. Even a half glance from her makes me blush like bashful of seven dwarf fame. And welcome also to Mr Ainsley. Kites. Star Baker, because he's the only baker. But before them, to my report, and is the market this week green for positive, red for negative, or yellow for neutral? Well, I'm sorry to say it's a big red, big time, it seems. One of the reasons for that is because milk volumes are very much in the black. Ireland and Poland are definitely up on last year. And France and Germany are both posting increases for the first time. So that's going to add to the bearishness. I've also heard that 
cow slaughter numbers are lower, but I've not seen the data. And exports from the EU, well, they're rubbish and stocks are building. The GDT auction this week, that'll add to the bearishness. It's run of two positive events, couldn't convert into a hat trick. With the first event for the month down a very pooey looking three and a half percent and taking the average price down below four thousand dollars, every commodity price fell. But it's not all bad. The New Zealand dollar has tanked against the strong US dollar, as has ours. And that's kept the milk price equivalent up to just under 40p. In Europe, every commodity dropped here too, apart from curd, apart from curd. Our current spot butter prices are currently being quoted out at around 6,800 euros. But quarter one prices are lower at 6,550. And quarter two prices next year are coming in at below 6,400 euros. So fourth 400 euros less than now. But cream at the moment is pretty high uh, in the UK, £2.95, as high as that I hear. And that's keeping butter prices high in the short term. Uh, skim powder is supposedly around €6,675, but buyer interest, I'm told, is nearer 3400 At the higher level, butter and skim convert to a milk price of 48p. At the lower level, 47 which is where quarter one prices are, I think, but they will be lower in quarter two if this sort of decline continues. So on the basis of this, as it stands at the moment, I don't see any reasons why milk prices will change for most processors here yet. Some of the highest ones I think might come off, but, uh, but for most, the competition for milk will still keep prices pretty strong. On the futures, well, it's red right across the board. Every price contract for every month for six months in the red. EU down 60 euros, so I guess it could be worse. But quarter one prices are now averaging 6,650 euros. New Zealand quarter one prices, though, are below 5,600 euros equivalent. And that gap is too great and dragging ours down rather than ours pulling theirs up. On an ampy farm gate basis, again, we're converting butter and skim into about 47p with quarter one at 46. Edam, Gouda and mozzarella have also slipped, but not much yet. But a lot of weekly not muches can add up to quite a lot. Uh, that said, some traders are thinking the market floor may have been found. So let's hope that's right. Curd remains exceptionally strong, though, and that will support our mild prices here. Uh, spot milk is similar to what it was, about 56p. But there are reports of a lot more milk being around. So there you are, another market report over for the week. And now to the main event. Hayley, welcome to the show. Can you give us an intro to this 
Corporate Environment Sustainability, a review, please. That's enough from you now, Auckland. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Thank you, Dopey. I mean, Bashful. Uh, (laughs) Hayley. I've been thinking about that for a while. (laughs) I was was thinking about the introduction, actually, and thinking, uh, you know, everybody's favourite market commentator. I always preferred Ian Potter myself. He's blowing a belt. Oh, dear me. There's not much gets him, but that one does. I resign. <laughs> Hayley, welcome back to the show. Um, can you give us an intro into this uh, corporate environmental sustainability review and its background and tell us why it's been put together in the first place, please? Kai asked me to review all of the upstream supply chain sustainability targets to see how they mapped against what dairy farmers and processors were doing. Um, It actually developed into a a much deeper piece of work because it became clear very quickly that this wasn't going to be as simple as summarising what the supermarkets and others were doing um, because they had some very different approaches and targets. Um, So it's been really useful to to understand uh, this whole landscape in order to compare it and also to explain it better to, to dairy farmers and processors for them to understand what it's going to mean for them. Okay. Now, you were um, an author and founding member of the original UK Dairy Roadmap report back in 2010. How have you found it revisiting the commitments and and progress made on environmental performance of businesses that supply into and purchase from British Dairy? It's been a really rewarding experience to revisit and to to look at how far the supply chain has come. But I'll be honest, when when I first started working on the the Milk Roadmap, it was about a a three, four year project. So when we finally finished it in 2010, I I was quite glad to be rid of it, frankly, and thought I'd never get involved with it again. I think most members of the committee did, too. And that's because, you know, back then, the, the idea of, of bringing retailers, processors, dairy farmers, government round the table to talk about environment was, was like pulling teeth. You know, the, the, the dedicated supply chains were embryonic at best um, and non-existent for some retailers. Dairy farmers were not inclined to, to do more and get nothing in return. Government had a very you know strange idea about how to reduce dairy farming's environmental impact. So the whole thing felt like a real slog. So from that point of view, to come back over 10 years later and look at how far the supply chain has come, you know, the relationships that exist now are facilitating much more action on environment. So performance is is very high, um, but also dairy farmers are recognised and and in many cases given more in exchange for for doing more for their customers. So, you know, overall, it's it's been a, you know, a a kind of very um, positive experience to look at the 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 attitudes, the relationships and the performance now compared to when we first started this, you know, over a decade ago. Oh, but it's, it, I was just thinking then what it would it be like in another 12 years. But but yeah, interesting. So what were some of your main findings um, in this new report? 
There were three main findings. Um, the first is, is no surprise um, that, that cutting carbon emissions is a major sustainability priority now for every big supermarket, but also all of the big hospitality players as well. Um, I think the key thing is that it's not just for their own operations, their own businesses, though. It's about their supply chain as well. And some of them are further ahead on the journey. And I'll, I'll talk about that in, in, in a bit. The second theme, much more controversially, is protein diversification. So a significant part of many of the companies' plans that I looked at um, to tackle climate is to uh, sell more plant-based products and reduce sales of meat and milk because then they reduce the associated emissions that come with buying in meat and milk products. So that is a, a real shift. Um, and thirdly, the thing that I've mentioned is that there are huge inconsistencies in the targets that have been set by some of these big players um, and also in the approach they're taking to, to tackling carbon within their supply chains as well. That's brilliant. We'll, we'll drill down into, um, into all those in, in turn, I'm sure. Uh, Ainsley, can we bring you in? Um, and I suppose really this is with your hat of, of someone who works day to day with, with dairy and beef processors and, and, and retailers. Um, What's your view on how important an issue this really is for them? And perhaps reflecting on what Hayley was saying a few minutes ago of the change over time as well. Yeah, thank, thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, it, it has really moved forward at pace over the last uh, 12 years. Um, now, clearly, uh, retailers are focused on the concerns of their customers at the moment, which overwhelmingly is the cost of living um, and food price inflation. But that doesn't mean that reducing scope three greenhouse gas emissions and improving biodiversity or animal welfare or business efficiency has gone away. So commitments have been made by all of those major retailers and processors, and they will want to work and want to work with their suppliers so that they can achieve them. Hayley, um, what extent are companies focusing on, I suppose, focused on a strategy that shifts towards more plant-based alternatives to dairy let's let's talk about that um, because clearly like you've just said it is it's a key part of one of your findings several companies are committed to switching up to 50 percent of their sourcing away wow. from animal to plant-based proteins and, and it is a wow point because for me this represents the most unconcealed conscious shift away from meat and milk that the industry has has ever seen, and um, you know this is definitely going to have consequences for the for the British dairy and beef sector as well. Let me give you some examples. There's, there's more in the report, um, but if you take Compass, so Compass is one of the biggest food service sector uh, companies, you know, dealing globally, but certainly in the UK. They've committed to a 40% switch from animal to plant-based proteins by 2030. You know, that's that's seven years away. Unilever, 20% of their ice cream products are going to be made with non-dairy alternatives by 2030. They also want to achieve 1 billion euros of sales of meat and dairy alternatives by 2027. So that's just five years time. Mm -hmm. um, if we look a little bit closer to home, co-op, they're increasing their plant-based plant range, but they're also going to price match any plant-based alternatives to the same price as the meat and dairy version to drive consumers, it is in their words, to drive consumers towards lower carbon products. So what retailers are doing now is actively trying to influence consumer choices and not penalise consumers for, for having a plant-based option. In their view, it shouldn't cost more to go plant-based than it should to go dairy or beef. Um, and then if you look at M&S, 
they've also got a target to double sales of plant-based proteins in order to achieve its net zero target. So there's some really fundamental shifts here from the retailers that until you drill down into their sustainability plans, some of this is not necessarily clear, I would say, in their in their general communications. Mm. One, one key thing here as well, when we've spoken on this subject quite a bit on the podcast before, especially sort of thinking back to episode with Jane Buxton and, and since as well. Um, but what, where's the root of this coming from, 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 I suppose, and I'm asking this question to both of you, what's the root cause here? What are the influences? Where's the pressure coming from, especially to buying teams? Um, uh, Ainsley, can I go to you on that first? Yeah, sure. You know, it's it's an it, it's a really interesting point, and and Haley's sort of um, you know the, the 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 there is pressure, I think, within certain sectors of the supply chain and um, and some of the buying teams. But just to sort of put this in, you know, to look at it from a slightly different direction, um, we can't get away from the fact that you know ninety six percent of UK adults consume dairy products um over 90 percent consume meat um and it's really easy for for us as individuals and for the public um and for those buying teams and retailers and processors to get drawn to the extremes of arguments and we've seen that in politics as well um but the reality is it's not where most consumers are um and retailers and processors they exist to sell to consumers what consumers want to eat um, and to respond to what's important to their buyers, to their consumers. So, you know, the the point we can't get away from here is that most people care about the environment, but they also want to eat healthy and high quality uh, and good value meat and dairy products. Um, So now it's really important. I think any buying team that misses this really isn't going to be very successful. They're going to lose their business to uh, to other organisations that just understand their customers better. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't offer plant-based choices. Um, but if you look into most families' fridges, there'll be a v- variety of products in there, and that's fine. But you ignore the vast majority of your customers at your peril. And I think that... Um, most of the buyers get this. I've had the conversation with the co-op about this and, and their suppliers. We work with them too. Um, and with the co-op, yeah, they are. They have brought in um, plant-based products, but they're also still focused on selling their um, dairy and meat products as well. And they they see the value of that. And they're working really hard with their suppliers on on helping them to reduce the environmental footprint of those. So you know, every. Uh, plant-based product has an environmental footprint uh, dairy and meat-based products too but you know the teams are working really hard to to get them down i'd completely agree i'm going to come in here uh Haley, these targets were set before the inflationary route and they were set because it was pretty clear at that time that these organizations would make more money selling plant-based than they would meat and dairy But since then, you know, you look at what consumers, what's happened with consumers, they are rejecting the fake meats. The share prices of the fake meat companies are crashing and Oakley has admitted it is not converting consumers at the same rate that it thought it was going to do. And a lot of its plans are on hold. And I'm sure at this point, dairy farmers the country over will be weeping at that very thought of Oakley's woes. But what the 
companies thought would happen and have set targets for at the moment isn't happening. And this inflationary route will delay it by five years, perhaps. Yeah, I think there's, there's there's merit in that. Absolutely. I would say, reading the plans, that the reason the majority of these companies have gone for, let's just, you know, if, 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 if meat and dairy products are causing so much of our carbon footprint, well, let's just switch. Because they've now realised that up to 98% of their scope three emissions, well, their overall emissions, sorry, come from scope three. And the majority of those come from agricultural products. So, they're, they're, they're under mandate from the government to reach net zero and they know that you cannot reduce emissions beyond a certain point so one way to reduce them is to remove them altogether so i think that that climate is and, and pressure to reach net zero is is the main driver behind retailers now actively looking to influence consumer behavior as opposed to simply offering a plant-based alternative I don't think it's necessarily the right strategy. And I think in time, we'll see this evolve and, and a recognition that those companies that have got large tails of scope three emissions linked to food are going to have to have a different set of measures and, and targets than companies that are dealing in non-food, because at the moment, it's just not balanced. And it will force them into, you know, quite ridiculous strategies in, in, in some senses, which frankly, and as Ainsley said, they're just not going to be able to meet so I think it's a combination of of, uh, of all of those factors, frankly. Tilly, can I ask you a question? How holistic do you think retailers have been when they've sort of looked at this issue? Because there's a whole raft of emissions that come from, you know, food waste and carcass balance and seasonal eating. And, you know, there's some fairly big issues that the industry has been grappling with for quite a long time to you know to in terms of meeting customer demand which is what Ainsley was talking about versus you know um whole carcass balance and that sort of thing in the, in the meat sector you know have they sort of stood back and looked and said well actually there's some what I would call lower hanging fruits it's not as big a silver bullet but it's a certainly a lower hanging fruit that would solve multiple issues first or is it just you know, because they're quite tight timescales and targets that you've talked about. Is it just a case of, you know, if we're going to make big changes, we need to make, you know, big decisions and make them fast? Yeah, Becky, I think most of the targets are quite rudimentary. And um, and I'll, I'll explain in a minute about where some retailers have got room for improvement. Quite often, there's very little detail behind a headline target. We're going to reduce you know, emissions from our, from our milk supply chain by 50% by this year but there's nothing to back it up as to how they're going to do it. And I think a lot of them are actually thinking, right, how do we achieve this now? So I don't think the kind of sophisticated level of detail around looking at carcass balance and and, and a kind of holistic approach to their supply chains has yet taken place for the majority. Um, But yet, if you look at their sustainability plans, carbon is only one element of it. They're all over food waste, um, you know, plastic reduction and removal. There's been some huge strides made and really impressive. You know, overall, I think retailers and big businesses are doing a tremendous job on sustainability. You know, there's been such a shift in in momentum. Um, And so you've you've got to praise them for that. I think the carbon area, though, is one that is still in the quite difficult to tackle box. And Mm. uh, and I think over the coming years, you'll see a lot more progress and thought gone in. But yes, you know, they're they're all at different stages of the journey and, um, you know, doing it. Some are doing it better than others. Can can I ask you a question that that might be a bit I don't know whether it's a stupid question or whether it's a bit obvious, but I'm only a simple farmer. But how much will the 
with the plant-based stuff and if the targets are for that to happen quite quickly will will things like the weakness of the pound have a big impact on that because um in terms of imports because a lot of the ingredients for plant-based stuff comes from obviously overseas will that affect that or or does it not really does that not really matter i mean that's a that's a great question actually i'm not sure that i can answer that fully um in the sense that that they have to have these products on the shelves and how how they price them you know it's going to have to reflect what they're paying for them but the availability of them and i think questions about the content of some of the products you know yeah. it's definitely that area of the market is coming under a lot more scrutiny but i i, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the plans to simply price match meat and milk to, to plant-based alternatives or to to have a crude target simply to to double the amount of plant-based and with a view to reducing and um, um, mm. sales simultaneously meat and dairy i would be very surprised if these things come to fruition or remain as targets in these plans as, as things evolve because it just it doesn't seem like um you know an appropriate way to, to tackle emissions to me yeah. but yeah. yeah it remains to be seen i think on that yeah and i suppose well, following... I, will. I, I don't think i don't think the dollar will be make make much difference because with almond milk there's only four almonds in and the rest of the stuff they get out of the drains yeah okay Smoking I thought milk. you was chief economics advisor. You know, well, one of your new roles that you keep taking on, Chris, would be able to answer that. <laughs> yeah, if you look at what's happening in California, there's not going to be many almonds left anyway. I, I doubt um, it. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, I, I follow up to you there, Haley. I mean, you know, the, these 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 businesses are obviously making these huge commitments in terms of targets, but what's the difference between that and what they're actually achieving in, in this regard? There's, I've been very careful in this report not to to pick winners or to say that people are right or wrong because you know carbon measurement it's not a regulated market. Um, there is a lot more guidance coming through the system now though on on how to standardise and make it much more consistent and how to identify you know a, a strong target and that that's called the the science based target initiative or the SBTI. Um, so if if you take that as the as as the standard by which you can compare everybody against. Um, you know, I've definitely identified some retailers and businesses that are doing it well and some where there's room for improvement. Um, and I'll just touch on a couple of examples. But again, everyone, everyone's covered in the report. So for me, um, you know, the co-op gets the gold star of, of all the retailers uh, because it has the clearest plan and target for achieving net zero. So it's going to be net zero by 2040 across all scopes of its business. And it's got targets and measures in place for how it's going to tackle it for its own operations, its own stores, its logistics and its agricultural products and everything else. And it was it was the clearest laid out. There was no confusion, no inconsistency, no inaccuracy about what net zero is and what carbon neutral is. So I think the co-op have, have, have nailed this. Marks and Spencers is another example of a, of, a, of a good plan, very transparent. It's committed also to net zero by 2040 from across the entire um, business and supply chain. What I didn't like about the MNS plan is that it also includes an earlier net zero target of 2035 for its own business, scope one and two. And, and if you look at the standards, you know, you can't be a bit net zero. They're very clear on that. Net zero is the end goal. That's what happens when you've achieved all of your reductions across all scopes of the business. So you can't say we're net zero for this bit by this date because it sounds good. You've got to be net zero for all of it by one by one point in time. Um, again, but in fairness to MS, it doesn't lead with that target. It's just in the plan. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if they amend that in time. All the retailers are on a bit of a learning curve with this. So I think you 
you've got to be fair to them um, to, to some degree. MS have also said they're going to publish a more detailed roadmap about how it's going to tackle Scope 3 in particular later on this year. So, so that'll be good to, to look out for and to get into. Where I think there's room for improvement, um, ASDA. ASDA's partially there. You know, it's got the, the right vision for being uh, a, a kind of carbon, it says, a, a, what does it call itself? Um, an end-to-end carbon-free business. So language is a little bit off, perhaps. Um, but it's got much more work to do on data, delivery, measurement, target setting. It says it's not going to set any targets for Scope 3 till 2025, which is quite different to some of the other big players. However, I think on all of this, it's better to, to take your time and get it right than to rush in. And that's definitely the guidance that's coming out of the SBTI as well. I think Asda may also be a bit hesitant because if you look at Walmart in the US, it came under massive fire um, from consumers and the media for setting a net zero target that was, um, I think it was like 2030 or 2035, but it was only for their stores and logistics, scope one and two. It didn't include their supply chain. So maybe Asda's kind of looked over the over the pond and seen what's happened there and thought we better take our time here and, and do it well. What surprised me when I got into this, though, where I think there's biggest room for improvement is Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's and Waitrose. They all lead their climate strategies with a headline net zero target of 2035. But when you get into it, it only applies to scope one and two, not to scope three, where the majority of their emissions sit. So, um, you know, that's a classic case of you know greenwashing, as, as Chris has alluded to earlier, um, headline PR generating targets. With, with actually little substance. If you look at these plans, t- from what I can read, their net zero goal is actually 2050, you know, which sounds a lot less impressive than 2035. In fairness to Morrison's and Waitrose, they have said that they're going back to work with the SBTI on getting their targets right. So, you know, I think it is a case of, of retailers have rushed in and you've got comms departments, buying departments, sustainability departments, not necessarily all aligning together on this. So, um, so you know, I think we need to keep on top of this, revisit the plans every year and just see at how the retailers are progressing because they are all at very different, very different stages. sorry there was a slight moment of the SBTI that that was fantastic Hayley by the way it would just be yeah (laughs) me being a a terrible child in the chat sorry (laughs) Um, science-based target initiative is that what SBTI was yeah Yeah. without going into too much detail of of what we've all been talking about on the side here listeners but we've we've been asking you what is SBTI and it is science-based target initiative um, I've I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> Ainsley, um, Haley was singing the co-ops praises there um, quite a bit, and you've obviously worked with them a lot. What's so? What are the? Why are they doing that so well? And what's different about their approach? Perhaps I think um, I think the co-op have got a good. They've got a um, um, a good, very very good environmental team in place. They've got a good agricultural team. Um, if you look at their dairy group for instance um then they've been established the dairy dairy group works with muller uh they've been established since uh, 2010 um and they've been measuring the carbon footprint since then um and it's very much working with their dairy suppliers it's a two-way street they they listen to their farmers um it isn't just sort of one one way um there's a communication process going on there um and i'll talk about it a bit more later but but actually 
Um, it's aligning the targets. So things that are important to the co-op that help them to reduce their scope three emissions. Um, also help the farmers to improve their profitability. So when you actually focus on a win-win uh, situation, then um, you get you get progress. You get people on board. You get progress. Yeah, I mean, following following on from that, how how effective have companies been um, in encouraging and acting on change strategies with regard to sustainability practices connected to the UK dairy map? I mean, are, are we seeing a lot of progress in this regard? I'm sure we are. I think so, Will. Um, I think most companies now have um, carbon footprint recording and change management programs. Most of them, certainly, uh, the, most of the majors, if not all the majors, have those in place. Um, the the dairy roadmap is aligned with the retailers and processors' commitments on scope three emissions. Um, and the great thing is that dairy roadmap's been in place for over ten years. Um, it's an example of the industry being proactive. Um, responding to valid customer concerns. Um, and we've seen re real progress being demonstrated. I mean, clearly, we're only part way through. Uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's further work to be done. Um, but, but those gains are being made already. So I think it's important to say that any dairy um, or red meat retailer or processor um, might be you know, slightly smaller um, that hasn't got a scheme in place to get the information from their suppliers and support them in reducing their carbon footprints and reducing their overall environmental footprint. They really need to get on board with this. Um, so, uh, so you know, I think it's really, really important that anyone it's anyone that hasn't done this yet um, really looks at this and gets on board with it. Yeah. Um. um what um, what impact are these programs having on? At a farm level, I mean, are, are they are they sort of making businesses more profitable, profitable and sustainable as well, or is it, or is it just sort of meeting targets? Yeah, in my, in my experience, they are. Um, I mean, the bottom line is good environmental performance is good business. Yeah. Um, so, if you take one group that I work with, so just over 150 dairy farmers, you know, the team involved in that are focused on a small number of things. Um, and giving the group members a chance of or the choice of focusing on areas that are important to their business. You know, so um, it, when you analyse the, um, the things that actually contribute to carbon footprint, you see that things that also link to making my business more profitable um, are, are, are just the same. So things like pregnancy rates, um, average age yeah. at first calving, lameness and mastitis rates. You know, what goes into uh, the diets, um, nitrogen use per litre, uh, that's a massive one at the moment. So uh, all of those things, you know, if you focus on those things and, and actually because, you know, they're things that you can change um, in your business. There's some things that you can monitor. They won't always be perfect. You know, I was on a farm um, the day before yesterday. They're doing amazingly well. You know, they're selling over 14,000 litres of milk per, per cow per year. And that's down on where they were before. Um, so, I mean, they're just in the top 1% of, uh, of, of UK dairy production um, in, in that system, in that sort of house system. Um, but even there, you know, they're still striving to, uh, to get better all the time. Um, and it doesn't, it isn't linear um things improve and things you know challenges come in as well um so with these groups over time the groups are making great progress um and the thing about this is that they do improve farm profitability and resilience to price rises 
Um, but also they reduce those scope three emissions to the retailer. So, so the two go hand in hand. Win-win. We were looking back at the 2010 um, UK Dairy Roadmap report a little bit earlier, and Will and Cindy, after that, sort of where are we going after that? And I'm actually going to ask that question now, Hayley, um, crystal ball moment. Um, what more needs to be done, I suppose? And where, can we imagine what, what the situation is going to be like in another 10 years? So I think if, what more needs to be done, um, Ainsley's already mentioned it. For me, it's taking farmers with you on this journey. Um, I think there's a lot of targets out there that aren't translating back down to farm in terms of what does this mean for you. So um, retailers need to, to slow down. Uh, make sure that their targets are meaningful, they're backed up with action plans um, and that they're they're giving support to suppliers on on, on how to, to develop and how to improve. An example of this, they weren't dairy suppliers, but I was with two big farmers um, uh, last month, both of whom are key suppliers to retailers of a different category, and they've been asked to sign up to their own SBTI global net zero targets as farmers. They have no idea what that means or what they've got to do. And they were saying to us, you know, what, what now what? Um, and so I think you've got to be really careful here. We don't push the supply chain into doing things for the sake of it that, that has no substance behind it. Um, in 10 years time, if I was writing or revisiting the roadmap again, I think there's two things that I want to see. Um, going back to our earlier point about protein diversification, I'd want retailers and food businesses to have followed a long term path of carbon reduction with a meaningful approach to, to, to sustainability that doesn't force them into reducing sales of meat and milk simply to cut the associated emissions. So I'd like to see a much more holistic approach to this. The second thing I'd like to, to report on in 10 years is that because we've measured it, we can prove that UK dairy farmers are the most climate efficient milk producers in the world. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today. But a very big thank you to our guests, Hayley Campbell-Gibbons, Ainsley Baker, Chris Walkland, and our podcast producer, Becky Leach. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back with you next week. But for now, it's goodbye from all of us here. I shall go on strike if you book Haley again. That comment <laughs> about Potter was below the belt. <laughs> oh, here, like, do you realise I've got to spend the rest of the afternoon massaging Chris's ego now to pull him back up? And, oh.